You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 18. We're going to be looking together at verses 24 and following. You'll find this on page 927 of the Pew Bible. Acts chapter 18, we'll read together verses 24 through 28, and again 927 in the Pew Bible. Hear the word of God. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. How should we define a successful life? What constitutes a life well-lived? You know something philosophers and academics have debated that question or those two questions for centuries? And it's interesting to me that even after so much consideration, there still remains no consensus. Is it personal happiness? Altruistic activity? Prosperity, self-denial like the Stoics? Well, according to the Bible, a life well-lived is one that glorifies and enjoys God. Anything less than that fails to achieve the end for which the life was given. In the passage before us, we meet with a good illustration of a successful life. Paul's ministerial colleague proved to be fruitful in the kingdom of God. He was used to build up the early church with his preaching ministry. And at the end of his life, I think he could say that he glorified the name of the Lord. Much of what we know about Apollos comes from the passage before us. And for our consideration, I would like us to focus our attention upon four aspects of this man. First, this text tells us something about the great Apollos' background. He was an Alexandrian Jew raised in a seaport of northern Egypt. And from this, we know a bit about the cultural and covenantal factors that influenced his life. Alexandria, as you may know, was a celebrated center of commerce and learning and politics. 
It rose to prominence during the reign of the Ptolemies, which was the last dynasty in Egypt. In the third century BC, it had the largest library in the world. They estimate some 700,000 volumes. And tragically, that collection was destroyed when the Saracens burned it. Initially, Alexandria invited the Jews as citizens and they encouraged them to settle there. So by the time of Christ, almost one third of the population in Alexandria were Jews. They think maybe a million. And it was here that Judaism and Greek culture came into close contact. For it was in Alexandria that the Greek translation of the Old Testament was produced. You've heard of the Septuagint that was produced in Alexandria. So obviously Apollos, this man we're talking about this morning, was no backwoods yokel. He wasn't a country bumpkin. He was raised in this great metropolitan center with access to the finest resources. And there was great learning and culture and sophistication and refinement. But he was at the same time a Jew. And that fact alone implies a great deal. Luke tells us that he'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. Literally, he'd been catechized. That's the word. It's what the Greek word means. Apollos had been thoroughly catechized. Presumably his parents, also his teachers, had trained him in the truths of Scripture. And someone had taken seriously the command given through Moses. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart, my people. And you shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. That's what happened to Apollos. He'd been trained in the way of God, in the way of wisdom, and the way of covenant love. And I'm sure it had been a systematic and painstaking process of nurture and admonition. Parenting's not easy. But what dividends it paid out. He had been well-schooled in the faith. R-E-S-V, I think in this particular instance, dampens the force of what it says. Literally, what this says is that he was mighty in the scriptures. Not just competent, mighty. The Greek word is dunatas, from which we get the English dynamic or dynamite. Apollos could wield the sword of the Spirit, and he did so. He was an approved worker who had no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So his parents filled up his spiritual hearth with plenty of spiritual logs, to use Tim Keller's analogy. And at some point in his life, the Spirit of God moved so that those logs were ignited. And he became a useful and fervent instrument in the hands of Christ. And what an example these things set for the rest of God's people to follow. He became a blessing to the church because he was mighty in the scriptures. And that was the fruit of his training. It's an encouragement, I think, to all of us, to parents and teachers and to pastors and officers of all stripes. Let's catechize. <laughs> On the very surface of it, Let's catechize. It's rigorous, it's demanding, it's time-consuming, but it's well worth the effort. Linda spent
spent hours upon hours catechizing and reviewing and teaching these truths to our children. And I know the same thing can be said about households in this church. Children who are catechized can become skillful with the spiritual sword. And what does the Bible say about implanting these truths within the soul? Psalm 119.11, I've stored up your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. You see, catechizing doesn't ensure salvation. The Spirit has to exercise his power. Cass read that earlier. When the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. He's sovereign. Changing your heart is his job. But catechizing informs the mind and prepares the heart for the new birth. And our job is to fill the hearth with logs, biblical logs and spiritual logs. And then we pray that the Holy Spirit ignites those logs with his power. First thing, his background. Second thing, it tells us something about the gifts he'd been given. It acknowledges in verse 24 that he was an eloquent man. He had a great command of the language. He was clear and effective in his speaking. That's a gift. He knew how to use the language clearly and fluently and persuasively. He could expound and apply biblical truth winsomely, wisely, seasonably. And he knew how to reason from the scripture so as to persuade his fellow man and woman. The text admits that his understanding of the Lord Jesus was still incomplete. He was familiar with the baptism of John, but he didn't know everything about the finished work of Christ. So verse 25, being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. He was clear and correct in his preaching of Messiah yet to come. He recognized Jesus as the Christ. He knew the anointed had arrived, but he had not been clearly instructed in the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. He knew about Jesus as far as John's ministry would carry him, and so God provided further instruction through Priscilla and Aquila. And he recognized Jesus as the fulfillment of prophecy, but he needed something more. That's to say, he dipped into the right well, but he needed more water. That's all. And notice that Scripture describes him as being fervent in spirit. Literally, the text says he was fervent in the Spirit, God's Spirit. The man was indwelt and empowered by the Spirit of God's Son. And that's the greatest gift that any person can ever receive. What a privilege to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. What compares with having the Almighty, Eternal Spirit living within your heart? And Apollos' knowledge was incomplete, but he was well-versed in the Old Testament messianic hope. The Spirit of Christ had given him zeal and insight and a sincere believing heart. So he was appointed to and fit for the glorious work of preaching. And I think his usefulness was due partly by God's endowment and partly because of his own hard work and exercise. 
As to God's endowment, he had nothing to do with it. God is sovereign. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, says Paul, who apportions to each one individually as he will. Your gift, my gift, all of it's used for the common good, and God gives it. But as to hard work, Apollos was expected to use and develop those gifts. Do you remember the parable of our Lord? Talking about those men who were given the various talents. It says, he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Therefore, I think we should pray for the gifts and seek to exercise the ones we've been given. But then third, this text tells us something of Apollos' ongoing sanctification. We learn that in the synagogue, he spoke boldly about Jesus. But there were two Jewish believers who listened to him speak and recognized in the great preacher Apollos a deficiency. It says, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. You see, Apollos was correct as far as his knowledge went. But as with all of us, God holds him responsible for the light he'd been given. There's always room for improvement. Always room for growth. I don't care who you are. Apollos could show how Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled messianic prophecy. He recognized Jesus as the Messiah, but he didn't yet know the good news of the gospel. As I said, he didn't know about the cross, the resurrection, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. As one commentator put it, he knew of the task Jesus gave men to do, but he did not yet fully know of the help that Jesus gave men to do it. So through the teaching of Priscilla and Aquila, he was more fully instructed. He was ignorant of many things that are very important. Just like you and me, Apollos needed to press on toward maturity. And his learning and steel were impressive. But he lacked critical information. He could expound and defend the scriptures with amazing dexterity. But he was, as of yet, unable to explain to you and me the significance of the cross. You put him in that library and ask him what the gospel is, he couldn't tell you. Not yet. Paul says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Priscilla and Aquila noticed the gaps in his knowledge, the holes in his understanding. So they took him home, presumably, and they explained the way of God more accurately. And that statement is helpful and instructive, at least on two levels. First of all, I think it shows how this godly couple dealt with a public and powerful preacher. They didn't despise him. They didn't disparage him. They didn't write him off. They never said that Apollos had no business filling the pulpit. 
In a transition period, they realized the disadvantages under which he labored. So rather than deriding him, they sought to help him for the good of the church. And never did they openly criticize or humiliate him for his lack of knowledge. They took him aside privately and explained the gospel more clearly. It was behind closed doors. They supported and they maintained his reputation. What an example to follow, isn't it? It shows how we're to deal with ministers and other Christians, by the way. You heard membership vows this morning. Membership vow number five. Do you promise to study its purity and peace? We all have an obligation to uphold the truth and to promote brotherly love. How much better is it to give private instruction than public rebuke? That kind of thing restrains a critical spirit and it safeguards a reputation and it helps keep the peace in the church. To have corrected and denounced publicly Apollos would have scandalized other people. But having done it privately, the kingdom of God was greatly benefited. I've made the mistake, and I have to be honest with you. I've made the mistake at times of speaking to others publicly when I should have done it privately. It's happened, for example, when tempers have flared and words are many. Things I should have said privately were stated in the presence of others, and that was wrong. I should have listened, but I spoke. I should have used ears, but I unleashed my tongue. And as a result, I not only hurt the individual, but I created consternation among those who heard what was going on. And I can't take that back. Once those words are let loose, there is no recapturing what you've said. Priscilla and Aquila did a great service to the church in the way they treated Apollos. And at the same time, the second level, Apollos was amazing. This gifted, eloquent, mighty in the scriptures preacher was downright humble. He was willing to receive instruction from humble Christian tent makers. Now, do you think that's the way that most men in his position would behave in our day? I think we all know how easily pride can prevent us from godly conduct. I know in my life it does. And it shows me that Apollos was more concerned about Christ than himself. It mattered little to him that those who were instructing him were lay people. What was most important to this man was growing in the knowledge of Christ. And he was only too glad to have his deficiencies and understanding cleared up. And I think it encourages us to be ready in receiving help to understand. No matter how advanced we think we are, we should be willing to learn. I learned something this morning in Sunday school more than once, and I was very thankful. In my years of ministry, I've learned one thing. A teachable spirit is extremely rare. The most ignorant plowman might have a deeper, 
clearer insight into truth than the greatest of all preachers. And no one here should ever become too proud to learn from such a plowman. I fear that many preachers today would have refused the instruction from Priscilla and Aquila, and they would have been sadly lacking. And it seems to me that both man and wife were conversant in the things of Christ, both of them. She was just as capable as he was to give Apollos instruction. And the man, mighty in scriptures, was willing to receive it from both. But then fourth and finally, I think this passage tells us something about his usefulness. Do I need to even mention this? It's clear. He was extremely profitable to the church. It says, when he arrived in Achaia, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public. He was in Corinth, where he greatly helped the church. And God equipped and prepared and positioned him where he would do the most good. He had created him for these good works. And so from Alexandria to Ephesus to Corinth, Apollos served the kingdom of God. And you and I are no different. God equips and prepares and positions you just like he did Apollos. He does it with every Christian, and there's no exception. All of us are used by God. Paul says to the Corinthians, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So the question is never, did God give me a gift? The question is always, am I using the gifts that he gave me? And as for figuring out what it is, we examine the need. We look at our opportunities, we see our availability, and we jump in. That's how you discover your gift. So in in looking at this, I think we can say that whatever else can be said about Apollos, let's admit that he was useful to the church. And in this he was commendable, but he shouldn't be unique. In fact, the same should be said of everybody. We may not serve in the same way as Apollos, but we should serve. Gifts will differ. Opportunities will vary. Levels of maturity will be incredibly diverse. But we're all called upon to serve Christ and to be useful to the church. Our Lord's parable of the talents is a fascinating exhortation to this. Those servants who use their talents productively are the ones commended. It was that one servant. That one servant who fearfully hid his talent and was punished. And I think it's, it questions the motive of one who says, I didn't get anything out of it. There's a lot of talk today about getting and receiving and healing and enjoying. But what about serving? We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let me ask you a question. Of what use is a life of eating, drinking, working, buying, selling, laughing, only to lie down in the grave without being useful to Christ or the church? Is that how we want to be remembered? Just taking, never giving. 
Such a life is wasted, according to Scripture. It's not fulfilled its purpose. It's failed in its privilege as made in the image of God. And therefore, one such person can say with the preacher, all is vanity and a striving after wind. No one should trifle away his life in empty things. We should long to be useful, abound in every good work. That's the first observation. But there's one more. I think we should learn, or should I say relearn, the importance of embracing and proclaiming the Christ. You see, Apollos was eager with his gifts and opportunities to refute the Jews and to show that the Christ was Jesus. He realized that Jesus is not just some moral teacher of truth, but he is the truth to be taught. He was proclaiming the same message that Paul himself preached. Do you remember? On three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them in the synagogue from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And he said this, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. The Old Testament didn't just record history and stories. It pointed forward to Christ. And Apollos was useful in finding Christ in all the books of the Old Testament, every single page. And he proved to those Jews listening that the sum and the substance of Scripture is the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember the question that our Lord posed to his disciples in this regard? The response is very instructive. He said to them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the key. That's the answer to life. He's the anointed and the Messiah and the son of God and the savior of the world. And in that confession is contained a summary of the person and work of Christ. Peter confessed Jesus was sent by the Father to accomplish salvation. And for that confession, he and his apostles were commended by the Lord. Do you know something? When he made that confession that you're the Christ, there were very few with Christ and there were many against him. The religious leadership almost as a block vote opposed him. And Jesus himself, humble and poor, without any visible signs of royalty. And yet Peter confesses him as the Christ. That's a remarkable thing. The veil of Christ's humanity didn't hinder the eye of faith from seeing his true identity. And so despite all the rejection and the opposition, the apostles embraced the Messiah. And that's when Jesus said this. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Do you see what he's saying? That kind of faith and discernment cannot be gained by man's natural faculties. There is no natural intelligence or study or research that can perceive that truth. 
No unregenerate human being is capable of reaching that conclusion. It cannot be obtained by human means. No one but God the Father himself can reveal that to a believing heart. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And Peter was favored with this revelation from heaven. And it was a blessing. And you know something? In our day, there are many who seem to be persuaded of this truth, but in not in any way affected by it. And that's the tragedy. It doesn't appear to exert any kind of influence or affect any kind of change in their lives. They're like the devils who was sent to this very same truth, but who vehemently despise Jesus. Recall that statement? Jesus sees the demon-possessed man, and the demon says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? And you can almost hear the sneer in that statement. That demon confessed Jesus Christ to be the Son of the living God. A demon. That devil said it to get rid of him, but Peter confessed it to embrace him. So it's one thing to admit the truth. It's another thing entirely to receive Jesus into the heart. And saving faith, to be truly saving, must be focused upon the person of Christ with whom we are united. It is only by union with Jesus, this incredible doctrine of union with Christ, this intimate, mystical, spiritual, true relationship with him, union with Jesus that his righteousness becomes ours. Just as our union with Adam was the basis for the imputation of sin, so our union with Christ is the basis for the imputation of righteousness. And that's why the demons who confessed Christ have no part of him. That's why sinners who confess him in faith share in his glory. That's the faith which overcomes the world. It's not naked assent. It's not cold opinion. It's not what James calls a dead faith. It's lively, sincere, and active. And it receives and it rests upon Christ. Receives him as prophet, priest, and king, and as savior of the world. And as we embrace the promises, we tremble at the threats, and we uh, strive to obey the commands. That's faith. And the truth about Christ greatly influences our faith and obedience. It's the foundation upon which the Lord God says he'll build his church. And against that church and that Christian who makes that profession, the gates of hell shall not prevail. May that be true of all of us here this morning. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the life the ministry, the example of Apollos. We thank you that he was useful to the church, and we pray that you'll help us to be useful in the same kind of way. And we're grateful that he proclaimed Christ and pray that we might esteem him and appreciate Jesus even more deeply than we do now. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.